If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 17 this morning. Acts chapter 17. While you guys are turning there, I want to wish all of the fathers here a very happy Father's Day. Um, this is a, a perfect day to announce that uh, Kenzie and I are not expecting kids anytime soon, so please, <laughs> please stop asking. Um, <laughs> but we, <laughs> we, uh, we are very thankful for all of our fathers. Uh, we are thankful for how you lead your families, uh, how you uh, lead in our church. We are, we are so thankful for you guys. Um, I know uh, for my dad, who's, who's not here, what he means to me and what he's meant to my life. And so I know that each of you, as uh, all of the fathers here, that you mean so much to your families, to your kids. So we thank you guys uh, and are so excited to celebrate you guys today. Acts chapter 17 is where we're going to be this morning, uh, picking up where we left off last week, uh, beginning in verse 1 of Acts chapter 17. If you remember, Paul and Silas were uh, in jail in Philippi. Um, they were uh, released from jail. They left the city of Philippi. That's where we pick up in verse 1 of Acts chapter 17. It says this, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. Taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus." And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they had arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. And those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command from Silas and Timothy, uh, uh, for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Let me pray for us. We'll get into the word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that it, it speaks to us. Not just words on a page, but God, you are revealing yourself to us from your word. You are, you are showing what we are supposed to be like as your people, God. You are showing us exactly what we're supposed to be like as a church, exactly how we're supposed to operate and function, the things that we're supposed to be about. And so, God, I pray that this morning as we open up your word that we would have ears to hear what you're saying to us this morning. God, and that we would have hearts that are, that are ready to apply it. God, that, that we are so eager and can't wait to see what it is that you want for us, God, that we are so eager and ready to apply it and to live lives that are, that are glorifying and honoring to you, God. I pray that we would leave here this morning better than when we came because of our time in your word this morning. We love you and praise you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. 
Amen. Now, growing up in the Bible Belt, uh, I became acquainted with what we could call like the Baskin Robbins phenomenon, not a sponsor, of like churches, right? 31 different flavors of ice cream at Baskin Robbins. There are like, 52 different flavors of churches in a neighborhood in the Bible Belt. You can try one a week for a year, right? Like, like you just, there are so many different types of churches, so many different uh, ministries that if you, if there was something you wanted in a church, you could go there, right? In my neighborhood, there were six major churches, main churches, that if you were to ask people that went to church where they went to church, it was probably one of these six. But on top of that, there were dozens of smaller churches all meeting unique needs, serving different functions in the community. So there were uh, at least, uh, and I, I, if I could count, at least 40 to 50 churches within uh, a short driving range of where I lived growing up. And that's very similar to here as well. If you wanted something in a church, you could go there and find it, right? And so having grown up in this uh, system, having grown up with churches on every street corner, if not two or three competing ones on every street corner, uh, having grown up in this uh, this world, I began to think about my church, and I loved my church. I, I loved the, the fact that we focused on the Word of God. I loved that, um, that people loved one another and cared for one another, that we had a great student ministry that, that was really devoted to letting us know the Word of God and making sure we know what we believed, and it, it wasn't just fun and games. So I grew up loving my church, and I began to think that our church was better than all of the other churches in the community, right? That, that we were the right one, and that all of the other ones were not as good. And what that led to was jealousy if you heard something good happening to another church. Right? The church down the road had a revival and hundreds of people got saved. Why didn't that happen here? <laughs> like, we have better theology than they do. <laughs> like, we're, we're, we have a better student ministry than they do. Why, why isn't that happening here that's happening over there right you're responding jealously beginning to to look down upon the other churches and, and re responding negatively when good things happen to them right if i heard someone that went and visited another church i was shocked like why would you go there i come here <laughs> right? i heard someone got saved at another church or would get baptized at another church or another church was growing and i'd immediately start writing it off like well those can't be like real salvations right it's probably just an emotional thing uh, it's not a real baptism. They're not really doing their due diligence to see if this person has placed their faith in Jesus. Like, it probably shouldn't even really be counted. Or, or, of course, they're growing. They're stealing members from other churches. You know, like, like we just start thinking negatively about these other churches because, and all of that was stemming from this jealousy, right? We were the right one. All of the other ones were the, were the wrong ones. And so good things couldn't possibly be happening at these other churches. They had to be happening here. And we see this jealousy in our own lives. It doesn't just happen at the church level, right? We see it in our own lives. Like, how many times have we been passed over for a promotion and responded with jealousy about the person that, got, uh, that passed us over, right? Melissa got the promotion? Like, I work harder than her. Like, I, I should have gotten that promotion, we, we see someone's career arc that we wanted, and they have it. They're advancing faster than, in their career than we did. We're like, Dave is doing that? Like, I'm smarter than Dave. Like, I should be able to do that. All right, someone retires early, and we're looking at working until we're 70, and, and we think, wait a second, I'm just as hardworking as that person. I'm just as intelligent as that person. Why, why don't I have that? Why don't I have that nice car? Why don't I have that nice house? We respond with this, this jealousy, like it can't possibly be that these other people got these good things. I deserve those things. 
Right? Jealousy is abundant in the church world. There's this um, uh, territorialness, that's not a word, like turfiness, which actually is a word, fun fact. Um, and there's this, like this, there's this looking at our world and, and drawing these borders and saying, this is our area, right? And we're competing with all the other churches in our area and we're trying to win. <laughs> we're better than everybody else and we respond with jealousy if somebody else does something good. Something good happens at another church and that happens in our, our lives. There's a territorialness, a turfiness in our life and we're trying to, to maximize our kingdom, trying to maximize our potential, trying to maximize our security, our safety, our income, our finances, trying to maximize our life and we respond with jealousy if somebody else gets a good thing that we wanted. Well, that same jealousy rears its ugly head in our story this morning. It's what Paul and Silas are going to come across in Thessalonica. And we pick up, again, where we left off last week. They, uh, Paul and Silas are kicked out of uh, Philippi. They make their way to Thessalonica. And we see here uh, that they go to Thessalonica, and it's this major city. We're still in uh, Greece, right off the coast of the Mediterranean. Uh, and they go to this major city where there's a synagogue of the Jews. And look with me in verse 2. Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So just like his custom, as was normal for Paul, Paul and Silas, they walked into the Jewish synagogue, and they began sharing the gospel. Now, why was that their custom? Why would they go into this city in Thessalonica and go straight for the Jewish synagogue and go in there and, to, and proclaim the gospel. It's because if there's anybody that should have been ready to receive the gospel, it was the Jews. If there's anybody that should have been ready for the message of salvation, it's the people who have been waiting for the Messiah, the people who have just been looking forward to the Savior, the ones who believe in God and can't wait for the Messiah to come. And so Paul would go into the synagogue and he would open up what is our Old Testament. He would open up the Hebrew scriptures. And he would show them from the scriptures that the Messiah had already come. These Jews, they, they were looking forward to the Messiah. But what they were expecting was this political ruler who was going to come and rescue them. Who was going to come and throw off Rome and establish the nation of Israel. That's what they were expecting. And we know that Jesus one day is going to come back. He's going to put an end to all of God's enemies. He's going to establish and, and firmly establish for all time and eternity the kingdom of God here on earth. Like We know that's coming. And that's what they were expecting to happen when the Messiah showed up. What they weren't expecting is a Messiah who would suffer. A Messiah who would die. And so Paul would open up the scriptures and explain to them that we actually need a Messiah who would suffer. We actually need a Messiah who would die and would rise again because if Jesus came back right now and did away with all of God's enemies, that would be us. Right? More often than not, people just without hope, without life, without eternal life, like we would be the enemies of God. We are sinful, broken, rebellious people. So without salvation, without forgiveness of sins, without eternal life, like we are the enemies of God. We're the people that would be done away with. And so we actually need a Savior who would come to give us forgiveness of sins. We actually need a Savior who would come to, to give us eternal life. And so he pointed out from the scriptures, from passages like Isaiah 53, that there was going to be a Messiah who would come, who would suffer, and who would die so that we could have our sins forgiven. And we, we, there had to be a Messiah who would rise again 
from the grave so that we could have eternal life. He would, he would open up the scriptures and Sunday or Saturday after Saturday after Saturday, he would go into this Jewish place of worship and he would explain to them from the scriptures that this Messiah, this suffering, dying and rising again Messiah had to come. And he would point it to them from scriptures. And then he would say this wonderful phrase, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Like he would explain the need for a suffering savior who would die and rise again. And then he would follow it up with, hey, I know a guy. Like there, Jesus came, he suffered, he died, he rose again. He is the Messiah that you've been waiting for. He's the one to provide forgiveness of sins. He's the one to provide eternal life. Like he has already come, the Messiah that you're waiting for, that you cannot wait to receive. Like that Messiah, the Savior that you have been hoping for and longing for, he's here and his name is Jesus. Week after week, he would go in and proclaim this glorious message of the gospel to the Jews there in Thessalonica. And look with me at what happens in verse 4. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So week after week, for three weeks, Paul goes and proclaims the gospel in the synagogue in, uh, in, in Thessalonica, and people are placing their faith in Jesus. The Jews who've been waiting for a Savior, they look in the Scriptures and they say, yep, that makes sense. This Jesus fills the Old Testament prophecies. This Jesus fulfills the Old Testament typologies. Like, this Jesus fills what we've been waiting for. This Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior. And they place their faith in Him and they receive the grace of God. And they receive eternal life. They experience hope and joy in life for the very first time. And along with the Jews in the synagogue, there are Greek people, Gentiles, who are experiencing eternal life for the first time as well. Revival is breaking out in Thessalonica. People are placing their faith in Jesus. Hope and eternal life are descending on the city. Now, if you were the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders in the community, how would you expect them to respond? Like, how would you expect the Jewish religious leaders to respond there in Thessalonica? These are people who have spent their entire lives trying to get people to follow God. These are people whose entire job is to, is to try to get people to put their faith and their hope in God, to, to follow him, to, to honor him, to glorify him with all that they are. And now in their city, people are glorifying God. They're receiving eternal life, and they are celebrating the, the coming Messiah, the one that they had been waiting for. They are celebrating the fact that he had come, that he died, that he'd risen again. How would you expect the religious leaders to respond? You would expect them to respond with celebration. And with joy, because the Messiah that they've been waiting for has come. And their city is experiencing revival. Hope and life and joy are filling the city. Grace is being poured out by God. Like you would expect these Jewish religious leaders to be excited and celebratory. But notice with me in verse 5 how they respond. Verse 5, but the Jews were jealous. Taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Jews, these Jewish religious leaders who should have been celebrating revival, the ones who, who should have been excited that eternal life had come to their city, that the Messiah that they've been waiting for has come, like the ones who should have been celebrating were jealous. Those, those Jews are supposed to follow us, not Paul. Those Greeks, are, they shouldn't get the same things that we do. 
those leading women of the city didn't respond to us the way they're responding to Paul. They were jealous, not celebrating, not excited, not rejoicing that God was moving in their city, jealous that all of these things were taking place by Paul and Silas's ministry and not theirs. So out of jealousy, they took some wicked men of the rabble. That's a really funny sentence to me, like that phrase, taking some wicked men of the rabble. It brings up to my mind like a Western saloon, you know, like that's the picture in my mind, like just a, a Western saloon filled with people, like piano music playing in the background, and it, everyone's a little on edge, you know, like one wrong move, a big bar fight will break out, you know, like that's what I'm picturing. I'm picturing like the Jewish religious leaders like swinging open the doors and just walking in there and being like, hey, we're looking for some men of the rabble, you know, like it's their first time doing this, they don't, they're a little uncomfortable, and like we're finding a guy named Paul tonight, anybody want to join? Everyone's checking their calendar, like, I'm free tonight at 6. You want to go fight a guy named Paul? And enough of them do that, and they form a mob, right? This mob gets together, and they, uh, verse 5, they form a mob. They set the city in an uproar and attack the house of Jason. So this mob of rabble-rousers, they're running around the city, and they are, they are headed straight for this guy named Jason's house. Another funny note, this is like the first time that we get mention of Jason. We don't get any backstory of Jason we don't get what he's like. We don't get who he is. All we hear is that these people are running for his house to go take him out, right? I, it's, it's the only mention we get of Jason. All, what we can infer from the passage is that this church that had been started there in Thessalonica was housed in Jason's house. That's where they gathered, but that's all that we get from Jason. This poor guy is just a guy that the, the mob of rabble-rousers is headed towards, and they go, they form a mob. They set the city in an uproar. They attack the house of Jason seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So they go to Jason's house, hoping to find Paul and Silas there. And they, they fling open the doors, and they, they search the house. They, they're throwing things around, trying to find Paul and Silas, and they're not there. So they look around and say, well, grab Jason, grab the other guys that are here, and they grab them, and they take them before the city leaders. Look at me in verse 6. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down, talking about Paul, Silas, and other Christians, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now notice what just happened. These Jewish religious leaders who should have been excited, celebrating, the, the hope, the eternal life, the revival that has hit their city, that they should have been worshiping the Lord and celebrating what God was doing in their, in their community. They should have been happy that the Messiah had come and that they see it in the scriptures that Jesus is the one that they've waited for. These people who should have been celebrating now because of their jealousy are joining with men that they would never have joined with before. And they are going and they are ransacking a man's house, grabbing him and grabbing others, bringing him before the religious authorities. And now they're aligning themselves with an empire that they hate. They hate the Roman Empire. But they're bringing these men before them and saying, we have no other king but Caesar. But these Christians, they're talking about another guy. So because of their jealousy, instead of celebrating what God is doing, they are affiliating with men they otherwise would not have. And they are, they are affiliating and bringing themselves in line with a Roman government, an empire that they cannot stand. All because they're jealous. All because they can't believe that good things would happen through ministry of other people. 
We go on. Verse 8, And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they had heard these things. When they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So these men successfully kicked Paul and Silas out of their city because of their jealousy. I mean, and notice what they said in verse 7. They they said that these men, Paul, Silas, other Christians, these men have turned the world upside down. And so not only do they know that revival has broken out in Thessalonica, not only do they know that people are experiencing the grace of God and eternal life in their city, they know that cities across the Roman Empire are experiencing revival because of these Christians. They know that hope and life and joy are spreading throughout the Roman Empire. The worship of God is spreading throughout the Roman Empire. Like, they know these things are taking place across the Roman Empire because of these Christians. So not only do they know that revival is broken out here, they know it's happening everywhere. And they are standing up and saying, we will not stand for this. We will not stand for the work of God in our city. We will not stand for revival. We will not stand for the grace of God going forth. We will not stand for this because we're jealous. And they kicked Paul and Silas out of their city. They opposed and stood as obstacles to the kingdom of God. People whose whole lives have been lived trying to get people to be part of the kingdom of God. People whose entire ministry is about trying to get people to follow God and to be his people. Now stand opposed to the kingdom of God because of their jealousy. I do want to note that this isn't the end of the church of Thessalonica. They don't stand in opposition and then stamp it out. We know that because there are a few years later, Paul writes two letters, First and Second Thessalonians, to the church at Thessalonica. So the church still goes on. They don't stand and stomp out the church at Thessalonica, but they do stand as effective obstacles against it as they kick Paul and Silas out. They go on to the city of Berea. Verse 10, when Paul and Silas arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Rinse and repeat. This is Paul's uh, M.O. This is the way that he operates. Go into the synagogue because these are the people who are supposed to, to, to be excited about this message. They go into the Jewish synagogues. Verse 11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So notice that Luke is contrasting the response of the Thessalonian Jews, Jewish leaders, with the response of the, the, the Jewish leaders in Berea. The ones in Thessalon- uh, of Thessalonica, they responded with jealousy. They opposed the work of God because they were jealous about what God was doing in their midst. But these in Berea, they responded the way you would expect. They were excited when Paul came in there and showed them from Scripture that the Messiah had to suffer, had to die for the forgiveness of sins, and had to to rise again to eternal life, to give us eternal life, when he showed them from scriptures, and he pointed out that Jesus fits this, that Jesus is the Messiah you've been waiting for, they erupted in joy. Look with me. Again, in verse 11, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. In verse 12, many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men, to revive The Bible is breaking out in Berea because they responded with excitement to the word of God. They didn't respond with jealousy and anger and selfishness. They responded with excitement at the word of God. 
and revival is breaking out. Notice the difference. Verse 12, many of them therefore believed. Look with me back in verse 4. Uh, when Paul preaches in Thessalonica, some of them were persuaded. That's not an accident on Luke's part. The fact that they didn't respond with, with jealousy and anger and defensiveness, the, the fact that they responded with excitement to search the scriptures and figure out if these things were true, like that led many, therefore, to believe. With not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men, a greater revival broke out in Berea. Verse 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowd. So the Jewish leaders from Thessalonica were moved by their jealousy, not just to kick Paul and Silas out of their city, but when they heard that he was preaching in Berea, they decided to go to the next town over and kick him out of that city too. So they were so moved by their jealousy that they opposed the kingdom of God and the advance of the gospel in Thessalonica and then opposed it over in Berea. They went out of their way to stop the advance of the kingdom of God in a town over from them because of their jealousy. Verse 14, the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. So, uh, so they, again, were successfully an obstacle to the kingdom of God, to the advance of the gospel as they forced Paul out of the city yet again. But I also want to show you again that this wasn't the end of the church of Berea because uh, Timothy and Silas remained in Berea so that the gospel could continue to advance, so that the kingdom of God could continue to move forth and revival could continue in Berea. But, it, but the, the end result is the same, that the Jewish leaders from Thessalonica, because of their jealousy, they stood as effective obstacles to the kingdom of God and the advance of the gospel. This is what I want you to see this morning. Jealousy has no place in the kingdom of God. So don't let jealousy impede the gospel. Jealousy has no place in the kingdom of God, so do not let jealousy impede the gospel. When we're jealous, what that really means is that we are responding to something good that's happening to somebody else, something that we would like to see in our life, we're responding selfishly. And we are looking at the world through selfish lenses. And we are all about me and my kingdom and my empire. When we look at somebody else and some, see something good that happened to them, and the first thought in our mind is, why isn't that me? That is selfishness. That, that is a, a brokenness in our heart, where we are looking through a lens that's all about me, saying, I should have that good thing. I should have that promotion. I should have that career arc. I should get to retire early. I should have that bank account. I should have that car. I should have gotten into that school. I should have that nice house. It's all about me and my kingdom and my empire. And we do the same thing in the church world. When we look at other churches that are growing, when we look at other churches that are seeing revival, we think that should happen to me. That should happen here, to our people. That should, we have better theology than them. We have, we have uh, better ministries and programs than them. We have, we have this that they don't. We focus on this and they don't. And, and it's all about me. It is rooted in this selfishness. And the fact of the matter is, 
that the kingdom of God is not about you. And that's why jealousy has no place in the kingdom of God because you're not the focus of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is all about the glory of God and the the glory of his name. It's all about making Jesus famous so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the goal of the kingdom of God. It's not about you. And so our jealousy, our selfishness, it has no place in the kingdom of God. It means we're looking at the world through a lens that is not aligned with God's kingdom. It means we have a goal that is not the same as the one that God has. Because we are living for us and our kingdom and not the kingdom of God. And what's worse is like these Jewish religious leaders, is when we respond with jealousy, not only are we selfish, but we will often find ourselves actually fighting against the kingdom of God and actively impeding the gospel. Think about it in the church world. If I respond negatively to a revival breaking out at another church, I hear salvations at another church, I hear another church is growing and they're they're experiencing a revival, baptisms are taking place at another church, and my first instinct is to be negative, to speak poorly about that church, to try to dissuade people from going to that church. If that's my first instinct, not only am I being selfish, but I am working against the progress of the gospel. I don't want to minimize that there are differences between churches. There are certainly differences. And I still, to this day, will say that that there are things that we do uh, that, that are healthier than other churches and directions that we're going in that are healthier than other churches. There are certainly differences. But if another church preaches the same gospel that we do, then at the end of the day, we're on the same side. And for me to speak negatively of another church and and talk down about another church and actively work against another church, it is me being selfish and jealous and impeding the gospel. And same thing in our individual lives. And we're jealous because someone else got something that we wanted. Not only are we being selfish, but when we speak negatively about that person because we're better than them or we deserve it more than they do, we're harder working, we're more intelligent, we, we have better ideas. When we speak negatively about somebody else because they got what we wanted, we are actively impeding the progress of the gospel. We are actively tearing down relationships, beating down other people, being negative about people that God has created. And instead of recognizing how God has uniquely blessed and equipped and resourced other people and celebrating good things that happen, we are actively fighting against it because of our selfishness and our jealousy. Jealousy has no place in the kingdom of God. So don't let jealousy impede the gospel. Now the application from this idea for us today is not don't be jealous. Because that is a, 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 a shallow, legalistic application. There are plenty of people who are not part of the kingdom of God who are not jealous. The goal is not to not be jealous. The goal is not to try to, to fake a happy smile and to, 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 to give someone a compliment when they get the promotion that you wanted. 
Right? The goal is to be so overwhelmed by the gospel and so excited about making God known, about, about making Jesus famous, that it doesn't even cross our mind to be jealous. That we are actively working alongside Jesus. We're, look, look with me in verse 7. Look at how they describe Paul and Silas and these other Christians. They are turning the world upside down. And they're turning the world upside down because it's their goal to see people come to know Jesus. It is their goal to advance the gospel. It is their goal to make Jesus famous. It's their goal to see people glorify God, to experience his grace and his hope and the eternal life that he offers. That's their goal. And it's because of that, because that's what drives them, because they are living for eternity today. They are turning the world upside down. So the application is not to just not be jealous, it's to be so overwhelmed by the mission to glorify God and to advance the gospel that there's no room for jealousy at all. Where we are excited if another church that preaches the same gospel is experiencing revival, if people are coming to know Jesus and being baptized at another church that preaches the same gospel because they're coming to know Jesus. Praise the Lord. People coming to know Jesus in another church, growing and experiencing revival is a win for the kingdom of God, so it's a win for us. That's why every Tuesday night as part of our prayer meetings, we pray for other churches in our community. Because we're all on the same side if we preach the same gospel. In the same way in your own life, if you don't get that promotion, you don't get that car, you don't get that house, you don't get the thing that you've wanted, if your goal is to glorify God and help other people know Jesus, then you can respond with genuine excitement and happiness when a good thing happens to somebody else. And you can display a little bit more what it looks like to be part of the kingdom of God. To be someone who is genuinely happy for other people. And is genuinely selfless when it comes to things that you wanted. Like that's what it looks like to be part of the kingdom of God. That's what it looks like to be overwhelmed by the message of the gospel. That's what it looks like to have the goal of glorifying God in our life, living for eternity today. For some of you, this morning, that starts with receiving the message of the gospel, believing it for the very first time and allowing it to change everything about you. That starts with the response like these Berean Jews of seeing if this is true, seeing if this is right, if, if we really do need a Savior, and, and if, that's, if Jesus really is the Savior, if there really is eternal life in Jesus Christ. So for you this morning, this whole life change starts with understanding the message of the gospel and knowing that there is eternal life for you, that there is forgiveness of sin and hope and grace and joy available for you. So this morning, in just a moment, I'm going to pray. And after we pray, uh, we're going to sing. As we sing, I'm going to be standing right here. And if you want to know more about what it means to follow Jesus, if you want to know more about the eternal life that is found in Jesus Christ, I'll be standing right here. I would love to pray with you, and then we have people who would love to talk with you more about what it means to follow Jesus. Do not leave here this morning without examining and seeing if these things are true. If there is hope and eternal life for you, in the name of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you that, that your focus, what you want more than anything, 
It's for people to know you. For people to, to glorify you. For people to lift up your name. You want people to be saved by the name of Jesus. Which is why you decided thousands of years ago to send your son Jesus to die on a cross for us. In an incredible act of, of selflessness and giving himself up, God, Jesus died on a cross and his blood shed for forgiveness of our sins. And he rose again from the grave three days later so that we could have eternal life. And God, you desire every single person in this room and every single person in our city and every single person around the world to know you and to experience the eternal life that you have to offer. Father, I pray that we wouldn't be so caught on ourselves and what we want and our selfishness, our jealousy, our pride. We wouldn't be so caught up in those things that we miss what you're doing in our world and that we stand in opposition to it. And God, I pray if there's anybody here, for those here who do not know you, who have never received the eternal life that is offered in Jesus, the hope and joy and grace that you freely give, God, I pray that this morning would be the morning that they search and see that these things are true, that there is eternal life available for them. So God, I pray this morning that you would move their feet, you would mobilize them. God, they would come to the front, they would be prayed over, and they would talk more about what it means to follow Jesus. Father, we love you and praise you. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.